Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Presbyterian. I'm Pastor Ryan. Have you ever got distracted by the cares of this world or projects that occupy all your attention that you noticed you were failing to focus on the things that really matter the most? Today, as our hearts and our prayers and our resources go out to those who are in need and still hurting from Hurricane Harvey, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5. And we'll see how Nehemiah handles the refocusing of his attention in the middle of the rebuilding effort to help those who are really in need. Thanks for listening. Probably my worst memory that I have of growing up it revolves around a Saturday morning. Uh, routinely in my house during the spring and summer, my dad would say, Ryan, get out of bed. Time to go cut a load of wood. And uh, for a young kid, that was not something I necessarily looked forward to, even though looking back now as an adult, those were priceless moments that I will forever cherish. Uh, the problem on this particular Saturday morning was cartoons were on. You remember when cartoons were on Saturdays and that was the only day they had cartoons? Well... I was there glued in front of the TV, still sleepy from not getting enough rest, and I kind of said to my dad, you know, I just think I want to stay home. Uh, you can imagine how that went over. On this particular morning, though, my dad, rather than take me by the arm and get me dressed and in the truck, he said, I'll buy you a treat, even. Because he normally did. After we finished a good hard day's uh, work, he'd get me a candy bar or a soda or something just to know we had a good time together. And so he pressed upon me, tried to bait me with that, and yet I still thought, oh, I'd rather just stay here. I think I'm going to stay home this one time. And he chose not to force it beyond that. And I heard the truck starting the garage door open. And, and as I heard the sound of uh, that familiar moment where I would normally go with my dad, my heart began to swell. And I thought, this show isn't even something I'm interested in. I'd rather be with my dad. And so I got up and I quickly threw on whatever shoes I could find and I ran out just as the, car, as the truck was pulling down the drive and I said, stop, stop, I'm coming. And I ran down the driveway and the truck did not stop. It continued. My dad didn't see me. And I stood there recognizing I missed my opportunity. I had a chance to help, to be there, to do good. And I missed it. Now, I know it wasn't my dad's intention to leave me heartbroken there in the driveway. It's the hardest, most difficult memory I have. But it serves for us as a reminder today that you and I only get one chance many times to take a stand and to serve Christ. And those opportunities don't repeat themselves. Are we willing to go? Are we willing to put our own agenda aside? To help the needs of others? Are we even looking and paying attention for those opportunities as they come? Because, folks, they're coming, and many of us are missing them. The hurricane wasn't really supposed to do much damage to Houston. I mean, it was hitting south of there, but lo and behold, it dumped trillions of gallons on that poor city. As I kind of followed it on the Internet, there was a story that kept popping up. It was... It was a story of a church, a very famous church, that was caught not opening its doors. And though there was some controversy over this, where the pastor later went on air to say that we had good reasons uh, why our doors were closed, and they're open now, and that we have a flood of volunteers ready to help and ready to serve, the damage had already been done by that point. 
And social media on Facebook and Twitter was just exploding with, look at these folks who don't practice what they preach. And the opportunity was missed. I think there is a real danger in our world today that those of us that carry the name of Jesus Christ are looked upon with a sense of skepticism and an overwhelming discerning eye to point out the wrong, you hypocrites, you followers of Jesus Christ, don't practice what you preach. And though that is the inclination of the world, and it won't take many of us long to fill an hour with the stories to which the media loves to share, the reality is you and I represent God before this world of lost people. So did Nehemiah. And so did those working on the walls of Jerusalem. This morning, we're going to walk through chapter 5. I'd like to ask if you will take out your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm entitling this message, Nehemiah, for the provision of the community because we're going to see something that happens. As Nehemiah was on his timeline, he was on his schedule, there was something that was left overlooked. And it was the needs of the people. Chapter 5 is going to recount for us this story. And what we're going to do this morning is just read through it and then very briefly look at a few observations for how we can apply God's word into our life today. Nehemiah chapter 5. It's on page 756 of the Pew Bibles there if if you're looking for uh, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Chapter 5 verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to be subject. We have to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very well. Amen. I was very angry, Nehemiah. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because... They could find nothing to say. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said. We will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. 
Then I summoned the priests, made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judea until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those who preceded me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and the wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I've done for these people. It's an amazing story. If you can recall, as we spent last week looking at the opposition that Nehemiah faced, you would understand that the impossibility of the task of rebuilding all the walls around the city was one that had to be delegated to the people. And yet there was those who wanted to stir up trouble. Nehemiah took a stand. Do you remember? He took a stand for the protection of the community. And yet now we see that there is another form of opposition that's facing the work that's being done here. Except it's not coming from those outside of the community. It's coming from those right inside. In that the needs of the people were being overlooked. It's a simple error to make. It's a really easy mistake, a trap to fall in on. That when you're focusing on the work that you're trying to accomplish, you'll recognize all of your money and all your resources. It goes into meeting that need. And how easily and subtly do the real needs of caring for those who have less become secondary concerns. And they, have you heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind? And it was easy for them to forget what was going on, those who needed help. I have a couple observations I like to make here. First, as we try to look into how we should act, I want you to see from the text here that compassion for others determines our actions. It did for Nehemiah. Look again in verse 6. After he heard all that was going on, he heard the outcry and the charges, he had a response. He had an emotional response. He was angry. This is not right. This should not be happening. There were almost four different levels of people who were in need. First of all, it was those who had big families, right? You can have anyone with big families. You got to feed a lot of kids. Going to Super One is like a $150 trip. You know what I'm talking about, right? You got to feed a lot of mouths. And so they're saying, we got a lot of sons and daughters and we need to get grain. It was those as you're walking into the walking into the bank, they were outside asking for help. But then you had others who, as they uh, made their way into the bank, they were going in there uh, to mortgage their homes in order to buy grain. 
You can imagine meeting somebody at the doorway of the bank that you recognize. Oh, you're coming in? What, what's going on for you today? Well, I, I'm getting a mortgage. Oh, a mortgage, you say? I'm getting a new boat? Maybe a pontoon or, or a fifth wheel? Maybe you're getting an RV or family vacation? No, no, and it's, you don't understand. It's nothing like that. We, we need to mortgage our home just to go to Super One, just to go to Econos. So you had that group, and then as you go a little bit closer to the teller, you'll see some more people in line. Uh, those in verse 4 who are being forced to borrow money just to pay taxes. We got it good here in America, even though that 20% out of the paycheck hurts a little bit. Any amens on that? Uh, we've got it a lot better than other places, certainly better than they had it here, because you had people in front of the line trying to borrow money just to pay taxes. But none of these compare to those who are found in verse 5. Look with me again. It says, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, though our sons and daughters are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. They were selling their own family into slavery just to pay for food. How did this happen? How did we give such attention to rebuilding the city of God? That we forgot the purpose of the city of God. Nehemiah sees this. And his action is motivated by compassion. This is kind of a tough one for us. I know it is for me when I need to preach to myself. Because I have spent time in ministries that are devoted to serving people that are less fortunate. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I get a little cynical. You know, if you really wanted to get better, try harder. You know, I had to go to school. I had to, I had to do Is anyone else with me there just a little cynical sometimes when it comes to charitable deeds and giving? You know, I need to remember that the gifts that I receive are those that have come because of God's grace in my life. My circumstances are pretty good. And I don't know the circumstances of those people. I need to make sure that my actions are not dictated by... A good sound logic and business sense. You know what? If, if you just invested in this here and there, you'd find your bet. Or if you did the same thing, you know what? That's not what ought to determine our actions. It ought to be rather instead compassion. There's a story that Jesus gives of a, a man who's going uh, down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he is, or up from Jerusalem to Jericho, he is overtaken by bandits. And along comes a priest. And everybody says, ha, he'll be all right. There comes a priest. But the priest passes by on the other side. And then along comes a Levite. And you say, oh good, a Levite. One of God's chosen people to serve him. He'll help this poor guy. And he passes by. And then comes along a Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan is the one who stops and helps this beat up Jewish fellow. The, the enemy, the one to whom the Jewish people want nothing to do with this Samaritan is motivated, and the text says, by compassion. He's motivated by compassion. Uh, we can't miss this, folks. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, you need to understand that Nehemiah's actions, they come out of recognizing there is a need. How can I help? How can I help? And it goes far beyond prayer. I want to be careful with this because I believe in prayer. And this needs to be a church of prayer. But if all we ever do for people is say, well, I'll pray for you. Then we're not getting it done. We're not doing what God would want us to do. Do you remember the reading out of Isaiah chapter 1? He, he, Isaiah is speaking to the people of God. 
with many insults coming to them, saying of the wickedness that they're doing, and they're trying to do these holy rituals. And God's saying, you need to stop. I'm not interested in your formality. If you want to serve me, they get busy serving those who are in need. Compassion has to be at the very top sensitivity of our hearts for how we serve people in this world. Secondly, I want you to see this. The pursuit of justice uh, determines our actions. The pursuit of justice. And in this sense, I want to speak specifically to God's sense of justice. Look with me in verse 7. He says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. Who who, who here would do that? I, I might ponder it in my mind, but then, you know, write a nasty email. I ponder it in my mind or, you know, maybe find somebody else who agrees with me and we'll just gossip about it for a while, right? But you know what I might not do is go and confront those who are in the wrong. That's what Nehemiah does. He knows this is not right. And he knows it's not right because it's breaking God's law. In three places, very clearly in the book of Exodus 21, Leviticus chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 23, God's law says you don't sell your people into slavery. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? But I'm going to put it in the law anyways. And yet that's what they were doing. They were breaking God's law. He says, what you are doing in verse 9, look with me in verse 9, what you are doing is what? It's not right. And so what's motivating his actions here? Not only compassion, but also a sense of following God's laws. We have to stand up when things aren't done the way that they're supposed to be done. When God is not pleased with how humanity decides to carry on. There's a time to address that. And Nehemiah does. We, we really miss the gravity of this because we don't live back then. So let me paint the picture just for a moment. Remember, what was the work they were trying to accomplish? Rebuilding what? Rebuilding the walls. How many people did it take? Did they contract it out, subcontract it out? Do you remember from chapter 3? They got all these families that were involved. And this group over here, and this group over here, this group over here. And yet, what is it that he does? Look back in verse 7. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Nehemiah stops the work. Nehemiah shuts down production. He pulls everybody off the wall. And I can't help but wonder if in his heart he recognizes what good is it to rebuild these walls if we're building them around people who are exploiting one another. Well, what good is it to put all the effort into making this place look wonderful and just a, a beacon of God's reputation when those who carry his reputation are cheating one another, lying to one another, breaking God's law? Can you imagine? Why, why are we stopping work? What's going on here? I, we're in the middle of this. What's the problem, Nehemiah? And he has to confront them and he has to address them because Nehemiah's actions are motivated by a pursuit for justice. And that's God's sense of justice. There's a time, church, there's a time for us to stand up and to say this is not right and how this is happening should not continue. And you are not pleasing God by these actions. We need to be motivated by a sense of pursuing God's law and love. All right, thirdly, uh, lastly, I want you to see that reverence for God determines our actions. 
you'll find this as he continues in verse 9. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk, do you see what it is? In the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. Nehemiah feared God, wanted to honor God. That's what drove his motivation for his actions. I don't believe that this is always easy for us to do. And that unfortunately I think many of us don't take God by his nature as being holy. Recognizing we ought to change our behavior, change our words, change how we act. Not because it's good prudence and practice, but because we revere God. I want you to see that he ties right into verse 9 this understanding that not only should you change your actions because you fear God, but you need to do so because who's watching? Did you see it in verse 9? Who's watching them? The Gentiles are paying attention. The Gentiles are watching. I felt shame for the body of Christ as these news articles kept coming out of Houston on how the Muslim mosques were wide open helping people, but there the largest church in the city was closed. And even though, and I know they made an effort to correct that as a problem, the damage had already been done, and you've got folks who are on the outside, the Gentile world, those who are lost, that are scoffing and saying, yeah, look at those Christians. Church, we need to walk in the fear of God. Our actions need to be determined by a reverence for God. There's two ways in which this is done. First of all, God's reputation before the nations. That's what we see in verse 9. And secondly, if you look with me in verse 15, I want you to see how once again, even as Nehemiah could have taken the stance that all the other governors had, and this was the way it's been done, He chose not to put an extra burden on the people. Look with me in verse 15. But the earlier governors, those who preceded me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them. In addition to the food and the wine, their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God. What's your Bible say? I did not what? I didn't act like that. Do you see how his actions are motivated? I fear the Lord. You can imagine the other leaders and nobles watching him. Hey, man, you should probably get some of this food. I mean, it's there. We've been doing it this way forever. I I know we got more than enough, but, you know, then we've got, you know, we got plenty then and 40 shackles. Come on. This is the way we've always done it. And he breaks tradition and he probably upsets some of those leaders. I can imagine them getting together and saying, you see what the new guy's doing? Mm -hmm. We got to put an end to this. Nehemiah didn't fear men. He didn't fear the threats. He feared God. His actions followed after a reverence. So I put this down. Leaders must set a good example. The Bible will say that now many of you should presume to be teachers because you'll be held at a stricter judgment. That's exactly what you see in the news coming out of Houston. No, no one is lambasting any other charitable organizations, but the Church of Jesus Christ is the one that's being eyed with a fine tooth comb. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will be held at a stricter judgment. Therefore, leaders must set a good example. Their character must reflect the character of the God that they serve. All right. A couple applications 
for how we can apply this into our lives. The first is this, kind of a big word. It's called self-abnegation, self-abnegation. I wrote this down. Don't let the rebuilding of your own fence prevent you from seeing the need of your neighbor. I'm having to preach this to myself this week, folks, because my wife and I just recently bought the house in Iron Mountain that we're in. And what happens when you buy a house? You tear it up, right? And you start fixing and working and dreaming. These are all the stuff we want to do. And now we can paint this and do this. Um, And then I'm like, and then I get to preach to the church that they need to be self-abasing and wanting to look to give to others when, oh, I need to be careful myself. That even as I carry on the work after my own needs, I'm not giving up looking for my neighbor. The same is true for the collective community of God. We're blessed to be able to, do you hear the I even heard one of them just now. Do you hear the kids? That is awesome. That is fantastic because that means there's life in our church. And we are being given the privilege to produce a, a, a new addition so that we could properly educate them and care for them in a way that we can be proud. That's the right way to set them up for the future. But God forbid that we put our hand to a task here and leave the needs of those who are hurting unmet. You know, we do a food pantry on the fourth Wednesday of every month. Uh, Only a handful of us here have ever come to that. Come to it. Come come and be a part of it. Come and see those who come. We got a community meal where we serve. If you've never been, I invite you to come to the community meal. These will never leave the forefront of the priority of our church. I don't care how many buildings we need to add on. Because we cannot let the rebuilding of our own fences around us, the addition of God's house, prevent us. From paying close attention to the needs of others. Compassion ought to be at the forefront. That's why self-abnegation, a a putting of yourself second, has to exist. The the Old Testament story of Nehemiah is not uh, vacant from the New Testament teaching. I want you to see this out of the book of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests. But each of you to the interests of others in your relationship with one another have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I'm used to my NIV translation, something to be grasped, something to be held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I want you to recognize that the command to the Christian to do nothing out of selfish ambition is built on the gospel. The reason why this command could come to you and I today is because this is what God did for you. This is what he did for you. You had a need. Say, I had a need. You had a need in that you were separated from the love of God. And while you were still enemies with God, he made his love known by the giving of his one and only son. He gave up what he had. He put himself second. Self-abnegation needs to be a characteristic of our lives. Secondly is this. (laughs) Stop praying. Boy, it's not often you hear a pastor say that, right? Do something. Do something. Let your prayers change your heart so that you're motivated to reach out to those who are in need. We cannot become people who simply are content with hiring a professional minister to do the work of ministry. That ain't my job. My job is to train the church for ministry. So there's the command, just like Nehemiah was. You got to do something. Sometimes that means confrontation. Sometimes that means getting up, giving, working. Doing anything that you can according to how the Spirit leads you. 
Again, I want you to see how the New Testament places this in the book of 1 John. John writes this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions, show of hands, who here has material possessions? That's 100%. Good. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, what is that? If I see them in need, what's at the top of our heart? Compassion, right? If I see a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. Oh, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll, I'll say a prayer for you. Let's not love with words or speech. Go and be well, and, and I hope you get better. Don't love with words or speech, but with actions. And the actions that come from the truth. Did you see the truth in here? Again, the New Testament is built upon the gospel. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So how can this command come to us? Because it's been done for you. God had pity on you. and He gave to you. And he continues to give to you. How can we not be then those who return what God has first done for us? So, it's as simple as that. Do something. I don't know what that is, but you do. And the spirit that lives within you will teach you and show you. All right, lastly, as I conclude, be, become a person of character. You and I need to be men and women of character, following after the leadership of our God passage I want to share with you here comes out of the book of Ephesians chapter 5. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Does that sound like a person of character? Look, have, have nothing to do with that. You know what business that is. You know the kind of people you used to run with. You know the habits and the attractions that you once had. Have nothing to do with them. The deeds of darkness no longer have fellowship with the children of light, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Nobody knows. Shh, it's in the dark. Nobody knows. But look at verse 13. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. I'll never know what that day was like with my dad. I'll never know. I missed it. I missed the opportunity. I can think, even in my mind, of those when I lived as a missionary, that I would pass on the road that were thumbing for a ride. And you need to use caution with something like that, but it stands out in my heart because I missed the opportunity. What about you? Where is the opportunity for you? You and I, we need to be men and women of character, following after the nature of our God. And I want you to see that the gospel message is in here as well. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. God has done for us what we could not do. We must learn a pattern our lives after him. So, number one, self-abnegation. Number two, do something. And number three, be a person of character. I want to conclude this message by reading just briefly for you out of Matthew's gospel. Turn with me there very quickly. Matthew chapter 25 as we close. Jesus tells a story of what it will look like towards the end of the age. And he uses an illustration of sheep and goats. 
sheep, and goats. One of these critters belongs as an illustration to those who are children of God, and the other one are those who are not. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It's on page 1542 in the Pew Bibles. I want you to listen to Jesus' story as we ponder the truth that comes out of Nehemiah and these truths listed before us. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? Does everybody see the word, the pronoun I'm emphasizing here? Look at the next line. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Church, don't miss your opportunity. Don't have any regrets in this life that you live. There'll be a day when time is up for you. There'll be a day when the king returns. My challenge to you is to expend every ounce of energy you have in the love of Christ. For the gospel has provided you and I opportunity to make the most of every opportunity. Let's pray this morning.